Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that prayer of supplication. And certainly our hearts go out to persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. We want to always be mindful of those that make great sacrifices to enjoy the privilege of worship and hold the Word of God in their hands and, and things that we are so easy to take for granted. Speaking of the Word of God, I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Second Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 3 as we continue in this series. And um, just dawned on me, I, I started the series about um, almost a year ago, in September, and we're getting to the end here. Uh, praise Some of y'all are thinking, praise the Lord. And so, uh, but it's been an interesting and a wonderful uh, exposition for me to, uh, uh, to exposit this portion of God's Word. Often you've heard me say in the preaching of this series, we must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to fully embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. God continually challenges me with those words as I think about the Apostle Peter and he's helping these early believers in Asia Minor that he's writing these two epistles to to see that they're more than just ordinary citizens, that they're more than just everyday people, that they are indeed a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. They are indeed the people of God. They are citizens of an eternal kingdom and he's challenging them to see themselves as God's word depicts them and that they are indeed the, the very children of God. Citizens of an eternal kingdom that they will live forever in the presence of God and, they, and, and He's encouraging them to rise above the entanglements of a world that seems to drag them down. In first epistle of Peter, we talked about how he's writing to warn the believers of the encroachment of, of persecution that was going to just continue to intensify as one deranged Roman emperor, pagan emperor after another would incite persecution against the believers and that would just continue into a, a, a fervor until Nero himself, I think, just kind of brought it to a head. And in this second epistle that Peter's writing, Peter changes his tune, his tone. He's not talking so much about persecution now as he is giving a stern warning to those early believers. That early, soon after, that soon after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, who would have thought that in the life of the church they would have to be dealing with spiritual imposters, false teachers, apostates. And Peter's warning them. Now, I'm, I remind you that Peter is in a prison cell in Rome, probably not long away from his own execution. And yet his heart beats for the believers, for the church, and he's continually writing to warn them, to be on the alert. And so we'll be seeing some of that as we continue in chapter 3 of 2 Peter this morning. The author Nathan Busenich in his book Living a Life of Hope explained that the very hope of Christ's coming was of paramount importance to the early Christians. Its certainty was so real in their lives. The second coming of Christ was such a reality in their very lives that those first century believers would oftentimes greet themselves with the word Maranatha. Lord, come quickly. And they lived at that great expectation. Jesus foretold that in his apocalyptic chapter there of Matthew chapter 24 in verse 29 and 31. Jesus foretold his second coming again to, to deal with unrighteousness and sin and evil and to establish his kingdom. 
Those angels, you may recall, that were there as the disciples watched as Jesus was ascending into heaven. And lo and behold, there were two angels that says, you know, men of Galilee, this same Jesus that you saw going up into heaven, he's coming again. He's coming in the same manner. Oh, listen, there were plenty of references in the New Testament of the coming of Christ again. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle John talks about this glorious hope of the coming of Jesus again. The Apostle Paul lived it. I mean, virtually lived the reality of the second. He lived as if the second coming of Christ could occur that day or the next day. And right into Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we call it the blessed hope. He says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask you, brothers and sisters, do you live with that blessed hope? Do you live with that fervent expectation, that, that reality that Jesus could come any day? Is that what you live for? Do you rise above the entanglements of this earthly life and the things that would pull you down to keep you from seeing who you are in Christ and that our, our King of Kings is coming again? The Apostle Peter, as he begins here in chapter 3, he's writing, and, and remind you, Peter, like I said, with every stroke of the pen, as he's sitting there in that Roman cell, with every stroke of the pen, he realized he's getting closer and closer to an inevitable, violent death as a martyr that Jesus himself had told him would occur. And we'll see that in just a little bit. Knowing that, he's not preoccupied with his own safety. He's not preoccupied with his own discomfort. He's not asking the believers to mount some kind of defense on his behalf. He's not asking them to pray for his comfort and, and, and his, his peace. He's all about writing to warn them about these imposters who are coming and they would not only inject immorality and licentiousness and ungodliness into the life of the church, but they would try to attack the very hope that was driving these first century Christians. And that is the hope of the coming of Christ again. This blessed hope of which we've talked about here. And so he's challenging these believers to be strong. But I want us to look at the apostles' tender reminder to the church. He begins his letter on a note of tender affection. A shepherd. You know, I don't think Peter ever lost sight of what happened that day, that early morning, on the shore of the Lake of uh, Sea of Galilee, in John chapter 21, when the Son of God in His resurrected body, there where the disciples had been fishing all night, night caught nothing, and Jesus was on the shore, and He beckoned to them to come, and He had breakfast ready for them. He had already cooked breakfast for them, and He pulled Peter aside. The same Simon Peter that had just blatantly denied Him, denied ever knowing Him, cursed and said he ever, never knew this Jesus. Three times. And he pulled Peter aside that day to do a marvelous work of reconciliation and renewal and restoration. Three times Jesus asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, Feed my sheep. Or feed my lambs. Talking about the church. He said to him again a second time, Son, 
Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. I'm sure Peter sat in that jail cell and, and daydreamed about that time. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. A third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And, and this time, Peter, it says, was grieved. I can see that big, burly fisherman as, as, as tears swelled up in his eyes. As, as, as he was just grief-stricken because he knew what Jesus was referring to. He knew where Jesus was going with this. Three times he denied him. And now three times the Lord is saying, do you love me, Peter? And the grief striking at his heart and tears streaming down his cheeks. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. This wonderful, faithful, dedicated servant of the Lord, shepherd of the church is writing. And look how he begins chapter 3 in this epistle. He says, beloved, beloved. You see, he's, he's beginning and you, you just see the shepherd's heart as he's giving a tender reminder to the church. First of all, the shepherd reminds them of who they are. They're the beloved. You know, it's interesting because the New International Version has it translated dear friends, but one of the commentators as I was reading, he says, that's not strong enough. It's not dear friends. It's beloved those who are loved by God. Those who are loved by the Savior. Those who are covered by the atoning blood of, this, of the precious Lamb of God. Beloved. It makes me think about that song, that, that hymn that we sing, I love so much. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Peter says, Beloved. Loved of God. And I believe the implication is there also in that Peter is saying, and I love you too. I'm your shepherd. I'm the one that the Lord recommissioned three times to tend and to feed my sheep. Peter reminds them of who they are. But he also in this, he's, he's, he's addressing any mental lethargy. We get lazy in our minds sometimes if we're not careful. And he's trying to kind of wake him up a little bit. He's waking his, his beloved up there. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. He's making sure they understand. I'm the same author that wrote you the first one. The content is different. The, the, the tone is different. But I'm the same Peter. And, and so he's saying, I, I now write you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. He said, I just want to remind you. Don't get lazy in your thinking. I want to take you back so you remember. And you know, sometimes we get a little bit lazy in our minds. We tend to forget some of the things that God intends for us to remember from the Word of God. This is the same word that Peter used back in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, as he was also talking, you know, greeting the early church and, and, and uh, these believers in Asia Minor. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Get your mind sharp. Be alert. He says, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, let your, go back and remember, Jesus is coming again. Go back and remember, Jesus is coming again. Wake up, wake up. Don't get lazy. 
And he's going to explain why. We can get so distracted sometimes, we lose sight of the very important things. Peter wants to remind them who they are. They are the beloved of God. They are those that Jesus has promised he's coming again. And they will see him in his risen glorified body again. But the shepherd also wisely reminds them of what they know. In verse 2, he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy, before by the holy prophets. Get your minds alert. Go back into the Old Testament. Search the scriptures. Remember. Remember the things that were told you by the, even, the, even the ancient prophets of old. As they, as they foretold this glorious coming again of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come again. He's challenging them. And I challenge you, go back and look in passages in the Old Testament of, of, of where the, the Old Testament prophets are saying, this Messiah, he's coming back to the earth again in Psalm 50, verses 1 through 4. Go back and check that out. Isaiah 13, 10 through 13. It's right there. It, that great prophet describes the coming of the Messiah back to the earth after the, uh, uh, the, 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 the first occurrence of the Messiah. Matt in, in Micah, that minor prophet Micah in chapter 1 verse 4. But let me read to you from Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Malachi chapter 4. Listen how he describes this Old Testament prophet, this, this man of, of old. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stumble, will be like stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, the Son, capitalized, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out. And Peter is saying, go back. Stir up your minds. Be mindful of the words spoken before by the holy prophets. But he also encourages them to remember the authoritative teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Look what he says as he continues in verse 2. He says, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter's not putting himself on the pedestal here say, of me, the head apostle. The one that's always referred to first. The one that was, you know, probably, you know, Jesus. No, no, he doesn't go there. He says, of us apostles. And later, as we finish out the epistle, you'll see where he makes a direct reference to the apostle Paul. He says, don't forget what's already been taught to you. Not only by me, but, 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 but Paul and James and the other apostles. We've been talking about this glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary said, in the, of the 260 chapters making up the New Testament, there are over 300, 300 references. The apostles are making reference 300 times to the coming of Christ again. It's not a small matter. Now, why is Peter putting so much emphasis on this? Why is he giving so much attention to challenging those early believers to remember that Jesus is coming again? We're going to get right to it in verse 3. Because then we're going to see the apostles' glaring rebuke of the imposters. As we move forward there, he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise 
of his coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Ah, oh, this is not the first time we've seen Peter deal with these false prophets, these false teachers. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. They were prevalent then in the first century, and they're prevalent now in the 21st century. Breaks my heart to think that there are people standing in pulpits of churches across this nation today that don't even believe that this is a truly the Word of God. They're more positive motivational speakers than they are preachers and proclaimers and expositors of the Word of God. And even those that we even recognize that somehow is connected to the Word of God will dispute many of the prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And believe it or not, there are those that even deny that Jesus is coming again. So you see, these false apostates, these wolves and sheep's skins, are, they're not a new thing and they're not extinct. They're still out there and that's why Christians today need to be alert. You need to have your mind stirred up with the Word of God to remember lest you fall under the teaching of somebody that tries to sway your thinking and, and dissuade you from believing that Jesus is coming again. Back in 2 Peter chapter 2 we saw these imposters described vividly as Peter in verse 12 for instance in chapter 2 he said but these like natural brute I think about bulls in a china shop where this is these are spiritual bulls in the spiritual china shop but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things that they do not understand and will utter perishly, they will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as, as those who count it pleasure to crowds in the daytime they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Do you get that? Peter said, listen, these are not outsiders attacking the church. These are people that, that have infiltrated the church. They're in your very midst. They're partaking of the Lord's Supper with you. They're partaking of the love feast with you. And they call themselves Christians, but listen to their lying tongues. Jude, that little book that we've been paralleling with the second Peter, second epistle of Peter, he captures the essence of this too in verse 16. He says, these, speaking of the apostates, these are murmurers, complainers, walking according to their own lust and their mouth, and, 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 and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people in, in, to gain advantage. But you, beloved, listen to what he says, similar to what Peter said. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, again, Jude picks up on that. Remember, go back and refresh your mind. How they told you that there, will be, that, that there would be mockers in, last, in the last times who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. And Peter now continues his exposure of these false teachers, if you will, here. Who, who dare to say, uh, there, and, and as we go back to chapter 3, in verse 3. He says, knowing, that, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their lust. Listen, Jesus had foretold in that apocalyptic chapter, tw chapter 24, Matthew 24. He said that there would be false teachers coming, false preachers coming, false prophets coming. You remember when, when uh, Paul the apostle was there at Miletus and he called for the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. One of the things that he concluded his speech to those elders from the church of Ephesus. He says, beware, beware, watch out. 
Because, because there are wolves who are in your midst who have sheepskins and they will come and they will bring false teachings. He said, beware. First and second Timothy, the same thing. Paul warns that these false teachers and false preachers are coming. And Peter reminds the believers of the sinful motivations of these false teachers. He says, listen, these are not Sunday school boys that, that, that are in your midst. These are people who practice immorality on a regular basis. These are people who are caught up in licentiousness and and, and immorality and, and, and they're covetous and they're greedy. He's exposing them because the church needs to know that. And when anybody proclaiming the word of God or professing to be a, a messenger from the Lord talks more about how you need to send him money or his ministry and support it and he does exposing the, expositing the word of God, I think red flags ought to go up all over in your mind. This prosperity gospel garbage is out there that's misleading people and getting people to concentrate more on their little kingdoms here on the earth than the kingdom of God needs to be exposed. And heaven forbid that any person that sits under biblical teaching would dare to support these kind of false ministries and false teaching that is, has pretty much lulled God's people today into kind of a, a spiritual slumber. They don't even look for the coming of Christ again because all they're thinking about is materialism and selfish gain. And Peter is exposing them for what they are. He said, listen, we've warned you. They're coming. They're here. As we look at verse 4, we see the apostle reveals the dangerous message. Not only are they dangerous in their lifestyle and the seeds of of immorality and sinfulness that they spread in their, in their crude, rude lifestyles. He says, listen, that's just part of the formula. He says that the real danger is in the message that these apostates are bringing. How dare them, in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation you see what they're doing? They're attacking the very blessed hope of the church. Remember who's behind these false teachers, these wolves and spiritual sheepskins. Remember who's, who's facilitating their ministries. It's the father of lies. It's the prince of darkness. He's been at it from the very beginning. And Satan knows better than anybody. If you can take the hope that the church has, that Jesus is coming again away from them. If you can rob that, that jewel of, 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 of precious hope from the Christian, then you've got them on your turf then. And he appeals, first of all, to the Christians as they seek to counter this, these groundless assertions of what Dr. MacArthur called uniformitarianism, which is basically the essence of evolution and all of that, that everything is just a long process from the beginning all the way. Nothing's changed. There's been no real divine intervention. Nothing has changed. Seasons come, seasons go, sunrise, sunset, day after day. It's just the same mundane process. Tides come in, tides go out. You know, civilizations rise. Oh yeah, there's, there's nothing divine about what's going on on the earth. And therefore there won't be any divine return. So Peter counters this. First of all, with the historical record. Look at chapter 3 verse 5. He says, For this they willfully forget. 
Who? The false teachers. They, they have intentionally, knowingly, consciously forgotten, erased from their minds, put it out of their mind. It's kind of like if you approach a Christian who claims to be, you know, a believer in evolution or some form of evolution. And you begin to quote from the Word of God or read from the Word of God, the historical record of the Word of God. Oh, I don't want, I don't want to hear that. Who can believe that there was a, a, an intelligent designer of everything? Yeah, I'm asking, how can you believe that we all evolved from a little amoeba in, in a cesspool of water billions of years ago, got struck by lightning and turned into a monkey and then walked away a man? Takes a whole lot more faith to believe that than what I see God giving me in the Word of God. But they, he says that they, they willfully, they don't, want to, they don't want to hear. says, for this they willfully forget, that by the Word of God, and let that sink in, that by the Word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water. Man, when you go back and read in Genesis, that's exciting. I mean, my goodness, how God, you know, as, as, let me just go back Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Oh man, what a, what a, a somber and ominous scene. Is There's nothingness and darkness and just water and ooze and goose and no form. And, and, and the Spirit of God. I like that. It's hovering just like an eagle flying low over the ocean. And, and the, the, the Spirit of God is hovering over this darkness. And God said, let there be light. There was light. And the light separated the darkness. And that was the first day. But then God handled this thing of, of the water. Water is everywhere. And God said, let there be a firmament. The heaven. And the heaven will separate the water. And you're talking about water. There was gobs of water, folks. Let me tell you something. There was a gigantic canopy that was pushed up into the heavens that surrounded the earth at that time. And then there there were, there were fountains that were submerged under the surface of the earth. Oh, there's water everywhere, but God separates it. And then Peter says, they willfully put that out of the mind that by the very word of God, listen, God intervened at the very beginning. We wouldn't be living in the world that we live or in the, in, in, in the universe that we enjoy and then the creation around us had God not spoken. Oh, sure, God intervened. But I thought it was interesting, not only did Peter talk about how God intervened and spoke divinely to create and form, and that's just the beginning. I could go through the whole week of Genesis, but we'll do that another time. But, but, but you know, just this idea of water. In verse 6 he says, By which the world that then existed perish, being flooded by water. Do you follow the sequence there? Oh, God pushed all this water into order. Why didn't he just say evaporate? Just leave enough on the surface of the earth so people can go to the beach or go to the lake and, and float a boat or something like that. No, God had a purpose and you, you see it right here. God intervened, number one, to create and order the world like it was in creation to separate the waters as he did and, and insert the heavens in between. But look what he did. He, it says in verse 6 there, Peter says, don't forget that by the word of God, when man had fallen in sin, and then by the time you get several generations over to chapter 6 in Genesis, you know what I'm talking about, the days of Noah. Where men were so absolutely sordid and evil and depraved and, and wicked that God repented that he even created them. And so he put into place a, a plan of judgment that he knew was going to occur even before he said, let there be light. Remember all that water that God stored up in the heavens as a gigantic 
water canopy around the earth. Remember all that water that he pushed under the surface of the earth? Not to mention what might have left, been left on the top. He told Noah to build a gigantic boat, didn't he? We called it the ark. And he told him that he was going to fill it up with two of each of the animals all over and then some spares for sacrifices. And he told him to take his sons and their wives and his wife and God put them on that ark and sealed it. And the same divine, powerful, universal voice that said, let there be a firmament to separate the waters. God said, now bring the waters down. And boy, did it rain. Boy, did it rain. It covered the face of the earth from the tallest of the mountains. Every living creature, the exception of those that abode in the sea, and those who were on board the ark, perished. Peter said, don't forget what the history book tells you. That this God is not just some disinterested, disengaged deity that's off there and just leaving everything to some, some eternal process to go along and randomly occur at the end. Oh no, he's been a God of intention and design from the very beginning and he has divinely intervened. Don't forget what the word says. And he brought judgment. But then, you know, it's interesting. Peter says, now having known that, knowing that, that God intentionally intervened to bring judgment upon the sinful world, then, look what he says in verse 7. It ought to rattle the timbers of every person that rejects the name of Jesus Christ because the same divine, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God who spoke the existence of the world into existence, who spoke the judgment upon the world and killed every living thing on the face of the earth, this same God knew then and knows now and knows that there's coming a day He's going to destroy this world again. It won't be by water because you know in Genesis chapter 9 after Noah and the animals and everybody, man, you're talking about a spell. Whew, being on a boat with the animals for a year. But anyway, well, that's beside the point. But when they finally got outside in the fresh breeze and offered a sacrifice, and God said, by the way, Noah, I'll never destroy the, the world again by water. That's a one-time deal. And to prove it, there's a rainbow. My rainbow. My rainbow. I'll put it there. We had a thunderstorm yesterday, and Asher and Salem were over visiting, and we... You know, they get a little anxious about storms, so I'm trying to change it to something positive. And I say, hey, kids, guess what? After the storm, there might be a rainbow. It didn't come, but I thought, you know. <laughs> I was hoping the storm would come out just enough so we could talk about the rainbow and talk about God's promise and all of that. But you know, God didn't say He wouldn't bring judgment upon the world again. He simply said, I won't destroy it by water. Look at verse 7. Peter says, in the history book, he says, but the heavens and the earth which now exist, are kept in store by the same word. How do things continue to go on? How does the earth revolve on its axis? How does it revolve around the sun at just the precise speed and angle and everything so that we don't roast or freeze to death? How is it that, that, that everything has its cycle, even the birth of, of, of new life? How is everything in our bodies working so precisely? We're fearfully, wonderfully made. Let me tell you something. It's by design. It's because the God who loves us, He is in charge. He's in control. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now God's not going to destroy the world again by water. This time, the next time, it will be by fire. He will destroy the world by fire. Peter says, don't you dare fall for this weak ungodly, unbiblical philosophy 
of uniformitarianism that says there is no divine God who at precise times intervenes by his spoken word. He says he has and he will. Go back and read the book. Be refreshed in your memory, he says. And he tells them that this world will be judged. All of these scoffers and apostates and wickedness and all the vile people of the world and leaders that are leading people in the ungodly pathways. God says they are coming to judgment. Not my word, Peter says. It's the word of God. And all it's going to take is the spoken word of God. Even King Solomon fell into that trap of saying, you know, Everything goes on as it was. There's nothing new under the sun. Of course, Solomon had some moral issues of his own. And there are those that are teaching this today. Do you know why they want to totally just eliminate the concept of the second coming of, 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 of the Lord again? Because you know what the second coming of the Lord? It means joy for us. It means, it means that we'll be restored. It means that we'll have the blessings of heaven. It means that all the promises that, that the scripture gives us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heaven included, are, are out there. And when he comes again, we're going to have the full benefit of receiving all of those blessings. But for those who are out of the will of God and halfway believe what the word of God teaches, they know the second coming of Christ means judgment. And if there's anything that they want to deny is a judgment. And I think about the crude and, and, and sinful crowd that's out there today, the proponents of homosexuality and free divorce and pornography and illicit sex and abortion. And you know, they don't want to hear about judgment. Heaven forbid you talk about them being held accountable for their sordid deeds, ungodly deeds. And so therefore, they want to attack the second coming of Christ so that there will be no judgment. Finally, we look at the apostles' bold refutation of their lies. So we talk about what Peter is describing here, beginning there in verse 5 as we've looked at. Look at verses 8 and 9. He, he counters their teaching as he goes, takes them back to look at the Genesis record of, of, of creation and the Genesis record of the judgment of God and reminds them that there is coming a fiery judgment upon this earth. But then he alludes to the divine nature of the Lord God to counter their, their teachings. He says, just remember our God. He said, look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Do you remember what they were saying back there? Where is this day of the Lord? Where is, it? Where is the coming of the Lord? You Christians are talking about. Why? The fathers talking about the patriarchs. Since they've died. There's been no change. He's not come back. I haven't seen him yet. And Peter reminds them something very important about the eternal nature of our God. That's just it. He's eternal. We're finite. I mean, if we're honest, we'd have to say we get a little bit impatient with God. Because sometimes He doesn't do things just when we want Him to do it. But, you know, we're always looking at our watch. Not many people wear watches anymore. They pull out their cell phone. But they're looking at something to gauge time. Or look at the calendar. You know, hurry, hurry, hurry. And they're saying, look, all this time, he's not come back. 
Surely he's not coming back. And Peter says, hey, don't forget. Beloved, and he uses that term again, very tenderly. He says, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so therefore, God's not subject to time. He's not up there in heaven wringing his hands. Oh my goodness, it's already Tuesday. And, I, and you know, oh sorry, you know, 2017. I, I gotta hurry up. He has a plan. And he's an on time God. But I promise you, you don't need to try to hurry God up. He, he's always done what he needs to do at the very time that he wanted to do it. And he reminds them, Peter's quoting out of Psalm 90, verses 1 through 4, when he talks about, you know, with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And then look at verse 9. And this is important because Peter contrasts the patient God with the impatient man. In verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, and willing that, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the nature of our God. He's, he, he, number one, He's not subject to time. He's eternal. But He's also a God who is long-suffering. He's patient. God has a plan. He is indeed coming again. The, the Lord is coming again. He will judge the earth in fire again. Or He will bring, not again, but for the first time. That's all going to occur. But you know back in Exodus in chapter 34 when God revealed himself to Moses, God spoke about his nature. In verse 6, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. God is divinely patient. And he's waiting. What is he waiting on? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And let me qualify that. Lest anybody think I'm preaching universalism where it says, oh, hallelujah, God's going to save everybody. All you got to do is be a, a, be a, a human and God's going to love you and you'll be the object of His reason. No, no, no. God's made that abundantly clear. The Lord's made that abundantly clear. When he taught about the two ways, the, the, the broad way that leads to destruction, he says, oh, there's many on that way that leads to destruction, that leads to eternal death. Oh, yeah. There are going to be more people that will die and go to hell than there will be people that will, that will have eternal life. Because he said the narrow way leads to life and there are few that go that way. Jesus said that. No, he's not talking about that God is waiting for everybody. But you know what? God knows exactly who he's going to save. And Jesus said in John chapter 6, No one comes to the Father, uh, uh, comes to the Son, lest the Father draw him. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, You didn't choose me, I chose you. God knows exactly who is going to occupy heaven for eternity. And he's patient. And he's waiting. He's not going to miss one soul. The archangels in heaven and all the heavenly hosts aren't going to. Aren't going to you know, rush him. Have you ever been with a crowd, you know, and you just want to enjoy the scenery, maybe on a, you know, a trip or, or vacation, you know, and you're taking in the scenery. This. Come on, hurry up. We've got to go to this other place. We've got to go, you know. 
Nobody's going to rush God because he's down to the last soul that he is predestined to be a part of heaven. But when that soul kneels on their knees and prays and sincerely commits their life to Jesus Christ, believing everything the scripture tells them about salvation and the blood of the cross, the last drops apply to their soul, then time rolls. And that's when God will bring everything to a conclusion. And aren't you glad that God is patient? He's an on-time God. I'm glad He waited for me. How about you? I'm glad He's still waiting because I'm still praying for people that I love, I know, who are walking in darkness, who may even claim to be Christians nominally, but deep down their lives betray the fact they're not really followers of Christ. They just wear the label, the cross. And I'm praying that if God's going to stir their heart, I pray that He's patiently waiting for them. If they're truly chosen by the Lord and he's going, to, he's going to come upon their hearts with conviction that they will come to give their life to Jesus Christ, I'm thankful. But God is an all-time God. He is a patient God. He is a divine, involved God. And hallelujah, brothers and sisters, He's coming again. He's coming again. The Apostle Paul told us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that in the fullness of time, I mean at the ripeness of time, that God sent His Son to be born of a virgin. God knew exactly, precisely, to the very day, to the very minute, when Jesus Christ, His Son, would come into this world for the first time. And I submit to you that by His divine timing, He knows exactly when Jesus is coming again. I pray that every one of you genuinely knows Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that every one of you knows with certainty that when you leave this world, whether by death or the rapture of Christ, that you'll be in His presence for eternity. I pray that you know that you are indeed, even now, an eternal citizen of the kingdom of God. And the only way that you can know that is first of all believe what the Bible says when it tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All people have sinned. And the penalty of sin is eternal separation from God. We know it is hell for eternity. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it tells us in the Word of God if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, He says, you shall be saved. Whosoever genuinely, authentically call upon the Lord, on the Lord shall be saved. And Christianity is more than just ascribing to, to a belief system. It's more than just being a member of a church. It's more than having a label. Listen, let me tell you something. It's, it's following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's confessing your sins, repenting of your sins. It's coming before the Lord and saying, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you obediently, practicing the principles of your word for the remainder of my life. I don't want to be in charge of my life. I want you to take control of my life till my dying breath on this earth. I want you to lead and I'm going to follow it's bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit that, pre that, that presides in you so that people see evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. It's how you live your life day by day.
and you bear fruit and evidence of it. I pray that is what you know and has occurred in your life. But I can't make that decision for you and I don't make that judgment for you. That's between you and the Lord. But I encourage you today, don't let something like that drift along thinking that you are a Christian and all the while you never have taken a step of faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is moving on your heart today, if God is stirring your heart with deep conviction, you know you're not a Christian, you know that Christ is not the Lord of your life. If God is drawing you to the Lord Jesus Christ today, I invite you to come. I would be very happy or any of the pastors to sit down and take the word of God and, and walk you through this wonderful life transforming decision if God is drawing you.